0: THE PHILOSOPHY OF ANIMAL COLORS by Dr. Andrew Wilson, originally published in Knowledge, an illustrated magazine of Science, plainly worded, exactly described, 1881. Part One. There is a suggestive passage in Butler's Hudibras, which maintains that fools are known by looking wise as men find woodcocks by their eyes. And if the axiom be correct, that a poet is only great when he is true to nature, it must be admitted that butler has been singularly felicitous in this metaphor whoever has seen a woodcock in its ordinary summer plumage may form a good idea of the truth of the poetic remark as that bird moves about amongst the fallen leaves of autumn the grays and browns and yellows of its feathers mingle so beautifully with the like tints of its surroundings that the animal is absolutely concealed from any view but the practised eye of the sportsman as has been remarked of the bird in question Even the very conspicuous and ornamental tail becomes hidden from view in a most singular fashion. Below, these tail feathers exhibit a white color tinted with a silver sheen and marked with a deep black. Nothing more conspicuous than such an ornament can well be imagined. Yet the tail and its belongings are, nevertheless, wonderfully concealed. For as the bird reposes, these underlines and tints are placed downwards, and above the ashen gray tints mingle perfectly with the bird's surroundings. As the woodcock therefore rests amid its background of wood and its foreground of fallen leaves, every line of its plumage is made to assimilate so closely with the objects around that the bird's presence, even a short distance off, is not suspected. The woodcock is by no means alone in this harmony betwixt its plumage and its surroundings. The sand-grouse of the deserts, for instance, exhibit a like harmony, These birds cannot be detected even as they run amidst the sand of their haunts, so closely imitated in the dull tints of their plumage is the tone of the desert wild. The well-known case of the ptarmigan is even more extraordinary still. In summer the bird shows a plumage of pearly gray, which conceals it perfectly as it lies on its bed of Scottish heather, mingled with the lichen and its kith and kin. But when the winter snows descend and coat the hillsides with a mantle of white, then a kindly nature still contrives concealment for the ptarmigan in a fresh suit of color. The pearly grays of the summer are replaced by a plumage of snowy whiteness, and save for its dark eye, there is little risk of the discovery of the bird by the unwary or unpractised sportsman. The grouse and common partridge are not less perfectly protected. The hues of the grouse match the tints of the heather, and the partridge is almost as difficult to discover, say, in a ploughed field, as the ptarmigan on the hillside. The birds just mentioned are all rosorial birds. That is, they are allied to the type of the common fowl and are typically ground livers. Their tints, therefore, assimilate with those of the ground and with ground vegetation, and whatever may be the ultimate philosophy which shows the origin of such harmonies, it is very plain that the utilitarian is bound to read protection in every line of the story escape from their enemies must be favored by the correspondence in color to which we allude. The harmonies of color present the safest, and therefore the best foil, to the keenness of sight of the eagle, and to the agility of the falcon and its kind. It is different, indeed, with the songsters of the wood and grove. With well-developed powers of flight, and with a close refuge amid the foliage of the wood, the appearance of bright hues and tints in these birds is by no means disadvantageous. Another law, that of the development of color in relation to sex, has taken precedence of the regulation of color as a means of protection. If concealment be necessary, nature will teach the art of hiding in other ways than that whereby she contrives to make the partridge face danger with a stillness that almost rivals that of the stones, trustful in the harmony of her plumage that so closely matches her heather bed. But there are wider fields open to the naturalist survey of color and its meanings. Suppose that we peer for a moment into the class of fishes. We shall find the adaptation of color to surroundings illustrated in a very apt degree. Whoever has tried to spear a soul or flounder, for example, well knows that the excitement of the sport consists in the endeavor to follow out the axiom of Mrs. Glass, and on the principle which that worthy lady laid down about first catching your hair, to first catch your flounder you cautiously and slowly paddle out to shallow water in your punt and you drift over the flat sandy beach at a depth of from two to three feet below the water is as clear as crystal here and there you see a lazy starfish on the march exerting himself to the utmost as he slowly extends ray after ray and crawls at the rate of about a mile a month or so by aid of his hundreds of sucker feet The sand-eels annoy you as they burrow downwards and send up little clouds of dust on your approach. But the flounders you came to spear, where are they? An echo seems but to answer, where? But the practiced sportsman bids you learn, as in all other sciences and arts, the first lesson, namely, how to see and observe. As your boat creeps along, he points to what seems a mere sandy lump, but in which his keener eye has detected the merest wriggle of a fin, dash goes the spear and up comes a flounder and as you watch the ground you see dozens it may be of similar sandy patches swimming off in rapid alarm the flounder's back it is really the side of the fish on which it lies is white enough as we know but the other side is as close a representation of a sandy patch as you can see or as you can imagine small wonder then that in flounder spearing you experience the difficulties which nature throws in the way of capture, through likeness and color, to the animal surroundings. It is the same with sole, turbot, and with the skates and angelfishes. Watch the first flounder you see resting on the sandy bed of the aquarium tank, and you will receive ample proof of the truth of the foregoing remarks. And should you chance to see the lazy monk or angelfish, as it lies prone, heavy, and indolent in the highest degree in the flow of its tank, you may again understand something of the value of color as a means of protection to animal life. In the case of those queer fishes, the little seahorses or hippocampi, with heads like horses, and with a body which at large reminds one most forcibly of some figure from the herald's college on a crest, concealment is effected in a slightly different fashion from that prevalent among the souls. Here the body, as a rule, possesses long streamers or fringes, that mimic the seaweeds, so that as the animal reposes, its body may well enough represent a stone to which are attached fragments of marine vegetation. The Australian seahorses, which live among red seaweeds, have streamers of that hue attached to their bodies, and the mimicry and imitation of their surroundings are thus very complete. Even their near neighbors, the pipefishes, with green bodies, when they fasten themselves to some fixed object and loll in the water, may closely resemble an inert piece of green weed. Amongst even the highest animals, protective coloring is common. A lion's hue matches the sand, as a tiger's stripes, according to Mr. Wallace, imitate very closely the foliage and trees amidst which it crouches. The camel's coat is sandy like its desert, and the rabbits offer as plain examples as any of the color harmony in question. The polar bear is white, like the arctic fox in winter dress, and the nocturnal rats and moles are dressed in shades the opposite of the ghost-like hues that become so conspicuous at night. Part 2. But descending to still lower grades of life, we may discover examples of this mimicry, not only of surroundings, but also of lifeless or inorganic objects, and of, it may be, plant structures as well on the part of animals the so-called stick insects, or walking twigs, as they are often called. The phasmidae of the naturalist present us with the most perfect reproductions of bits of dried twigs. A figure of one of these insects is before me as I write. It is represented climbing on the delicate branch of a shrub, and but for the expectation of what one is looking for, there would be considerable difficulty in determining which is insect and which plant. The bodies of these twig insects, which belong by the way, to the orthoptera or that order which harbors the familiar crickets and grasshoppers are represented by mere lines the wings have disappeared and it has been remarked that in their gait these insects exhibit a peculiar habit of using their legs in a singularly awkward fashion and thus apparently aid the illusion of the spectator that he is regarding a dried twig moved erratically by the wind more extraordinary still are the leaf insects near allies indeed of the walking sticks here, mimicry of the plant proceeds so far as to fully justify the eminent naturalist's remarks that it is strange to find the animal assuming a mimetic disguise and aping the actor's art. The wing in the leaf insects exactly imitate leaves. The venation, or arrangement of the veins in the leaf, is clearly seen, and in one form, phylum even the chest and legs of the animal assume leaf-like characters. When such an insect rests amid foliage, the value of such a close resemblance to its plant surroundings as a means of protection can be readily understood. In some leaf insects, all of which are tropical species, the wings resemble leaves that are dried and withered. In others, the minute fungi that attack leaves are imitated. Mr. A. R. Wallace tells us that one of the walking sticks obtained by him in Borneo was covered over with foliaceous excrescences of a clear olive-green color so as exactly to resemble a stick grown over by a creeping moss or juggermania. The dyak who brought it me assured me it was grown over with moss, though alive, and it was only after a most minute examination that I could convince myself it was not so. Lastly, there may be noticed, in connection with these curious traits of animal life, the fact that certain animals, themselves harmless and inoffensive, may assume the exact appearance of offensive neighbors. In this respect, certain butterflies are facile prancite. Certain South American butterflies, known collectively under their family name of Heliconidae, exhibit a brilliant coloration, but likewise possess a very strong odor, and it may be presumed from the sequel a highly disagreeable taste as well. They are highly conspicuous insects, and the undersides of their wings are as brilliantly colored as the upper surfaces, so that, even in repose, and when resting with the wings opposed over the back, they are readily enough seen. Their colors are prominent, not to say gaudy. Yellows, reds, and whites commingle with blacks, blues, and other tints in a striking fashion. They are further by no means rapid flyers, and putting the foregoing circumstances of their gaudy color and their slow movements together, no group of animals would seem more liable to the attacks of bird enemies than these helicon butterflies. Yet the reverse is the case so far from being decimated their race flourishes apace and this result is clearly due to the strong odour and nauseous taste they possess the mere touch of a helicon is in itself a pungent matter which reminds one of nothing so much as the persistence of the muskrat's secretion or the still more awful effluvium of the american skunk their neighbour butterflies may fall victims by the score to the rapacity of their feathered enemies but the helicons are spared from even the semblance of attack. So far, there seems nothing unusual or striking in a group of butterflies being protected through strong odor and worse taste from their natural enemies, the birds. But now comes the most curious phase of this history. Another and distinct family of butterflies, known as the Leptilidae, allied to the common white cabbage butterfly and removed from the helicons, also possesses representatives in South America. There are no points of agreement between the leptilides and the helicons, save indeed that both are butterflies. Furthermore, the Days are entirely destitute of the nauseous odor and of the strong taste of the helicons, and in respect of their more agreeable presence should become a prominent article, as do other butterflies, in the bill of fare of the birds. Yet, strangely enough, the leptilides escape persecution, and their reason is not far to seek or difficult to find. When they are carefully examined, certain species of the leptilides are seen to be exact facsimiles in color and appearance of the stinking helicons. Naturalists at first classed both as helicons until a closer examination showed the difference between these butterflies and likewise proved that the leptilides had thus mimicked, in the plainest possible manner, the colors of their strong-smelling neighbors. Nor are the colors alone imitated. The very shape of the Helicon's wings is reproduced in those of the leptilides, and the feelers likewise mimic those of the former group. Again, special forms of leptilides mimic special forms of Helicon's. The flight has become of similar character in both species, and the habits have also been slavishly copied. Such instances as these certainly represent food for thought to the reflective mind. It is the business of philosophy to account for facts by placing the facts in scientific juxtaposition. Philosophy in this light is the thread upon which the pearls of knowledge are strung. What then, it may be asked, is the philosophy which can explain the curious resemblances seen in the animal world, ranging from, say, a mere likeness in tint to the surroundings, as in the flounder or woodcock, through more intensified likenesses, to the exact mimicry and to the slavish copy of color and form, as in the butterflies. A first and highly important feature in the consideration of the case is found in the fact that there is a gradation in the degree of mimicry. From the mere sand or ground tinting of the flounder to the exact coloring of the butterflies is, of course, a wide step but it is one which is bridged over by intermediate examples and stages. Then secondly, we discover a purpose or use in the disguises, that purpose, apart from any considerations of its origin, being the protection of the animal from its enemies, and the consequent good and increase of its race. Thirdly, it appears possible to account for these curious transformations and disguises by finding an initial step. It is the old story of le premier pas qui coûte, applied to natural history research, and this first step is found in the solid axiom that every living species is liable to variation and change. Next succeeds the consideration that such varieties as are produced have to struggle for existence. Suppose a number of white varieties produced in a cold, snowy region along with varieties of more conspicuous colors. It is evident that, whilst the white varieties would escape from their enemies, the darker colored individuals would succumb. Thus, the white race comes to the front and holds its own, and its perpetuation and increase becomes a matter of surety. Summing up the argument, we find that two factors are at work in bringing about these wonderful color likenesses in the animal world. The one is variation, producing the color varieties. The other is the circumstances of life, which weed out the weak and give the battle to the strong, which latter are those whose colors best suit their surroundings. This is the philosophy which natural history today lays down for our acceptance. Nay more, it is a philosophy which explains far more important facts of life than mere mimicry. It is evolution and development, reduced to their plainest and fundamental terms, in a word, Darwinism in a nutshell, as illustrated by the variation and change that all life knows, and by the warring of that life bringing the best of its units to the front of the battle. End of The Philosophy of Animal Colors by Dr. Andrew Wilson